Highland Falls, El Paso, Clarksville, Watertown, and from other important military capitals around the globe. Eye on Defense brings the top military and defense issues into focus. Eye on Defense is proudly sponsored by Big Sarge Pre-Owned TA-50 Emporium and The Last Hope Jewelry and Pawn. And now, citizens of Earth, brace yourselves for the next episode of Eye on Defense. Defense, 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 defense. All right, we're back. This is episode 195. Today is 24 November. Yesterday was Thanksgiving, and I was a good American, and I had my turkey and my mashed potatoes and dressing and watched uh, Detroit Lions and on TV play Green Bay and got beat. I think Dallas won, and there was another game, a late game, that I didn't watch. But anyway, Thanksgiving's come and gone. Um, and I'll try to catch catch up on what's going on in Israel one, two, nine stories tonight. Uh, one of them, half of them are Israel, or at least five of them are. That's more than half. So we'll get started. Trying to catch back up, and I put these in the best orders I could. I think they're in the correct order, but uh, at least that's how it worked out in my brain. So we'll start with 21 November from airandspaceforces.com. It's a magazine. AC-130 strikes Iranian-backed militants who launched missile at U.S. troops in Iraq. Greg Hadley, 21 November. I got it online. <clears throat> Excuse me. A U.S. Air Force AC-130 gunship struck members of an Iranian-backed militia who had launched a missile attack on U.S. forces in Iraq on 21 November, which is like three days ago, resulting in enemy casualties, according to a U.S. CENTCOM and the Pentagon. A strike occurred after the Iranian-backed militias launched a close-range ballistic missile against U.S. and coalition forces at Al-Assad Air Base in Iraq. That's from Deputy Press Secretary Sabrina Singh, who told reporters in a briefing. We talked about her many times before. A CENTCOM statement referred to several enemy casualties, while Singh said there were some hostile fatalities. Unlike three previous airstrikes, the latest incident was not pre-planned. The AC-130 was overhead at the time of a missile attack and was able to respond, Singh said. Previous airstrikes were against militia facilities located in Syria and were conducted by either F-15s or F-16s. The Pentagon has not disclosed whether those strikes resulted in enemy casualties. And a little bit about what the U.S. is doing there. U.S. troops are in Iraq and Syria to advise local partners who are working to prevent a resurgence of the Islamic State group. Uh, There are about 2,500 U.S. troops in Iraq and 900 troops are in Syria. And then the next thing, 22 November, from USNI, Heather Mongolio, USS Thomas Hudner downs multiple drones launched from Yemen. Of course, I think this is the second time they've done that, the Hudner, and the, the Carney did it before also. So USS Thomas Hudner DDG-116 shot down multiple one-way attack drones launched from Houthi-controlled areas in Yemen, U.S. CENTCOM announced on X or Twitter Wednesday night, uh, last night, or the night before last. Uh, this is the second time that Thomas Hudner has shut down, shut, shot down sorry, drones from Yemen in two weeks. The guided missile destroyer also shot down a drone in the Red Sea on November 15th, USNI News previously reported. Uh, the Thomas Hudner shot down the drone while on patrol in the Red Sea. No injuries or damage were reported. CENTCOM did not provide additional details. Uh, the USS Hudner is part of the jailed R-4 strike group. 
but is operating separately from the strike group. Uh, the Gerald Ford CVN-78 is in the eastern Mediterranean. And the Hudner is now in the Red Sea, USNI News understands. Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin ordered the second extension of the Ford Carrier Strike Group, USNI News reported on Monday. So there's a C-130, AC-130 strike, and now the Hudner shoots down a missile. I'm sorry, one-way attack drones, my bad. Uh, now, kind of a follow-up, we talked about Al-Shifa, and well, now we're going to Gaza, right? Uh, we went from the U.S. actions, now we're in Gaza, and the Al-Shifa Hospital in northern Gaza. There was a tunnel. The, everybody's been saying there's tunnels. The IDF is saying there's tunnels. People are saying there's not tunnels. A few days ago, they found a hole in the ground. People were saying it wasn't a tunnel. IDF didn't hear from them. And then they went down there. I think they sent a dog down there. They found a shaft. They went down. They sent the dog in. Then he ran into a door. Not run into it. He saw a door, a blast door with a hole in it for firing. And then he didn't hear nothing. And everybody was like, well, what's that? Well, then a couple of days later, uh, the IDF kind of takes a camera down there and reporters down there. This is a story about that. So I'm just kind of catching up on Al-Shifa. Maybe you already know this. This is from 22 November. Uh, Emmanuel Fabian, we do a lot of his stories. He's from Times of Israel. IDF exposes further parts of Hamas's tunnel network under Shifa Hospital. IDF exposes further parts of the Hamas tunnel network under Shifa Hospital, publishing videos of additional entrances and underground hideout rooms. The IDF said the tunnel goes under the so-called Qatari building at Shifa. It includes war rooms, hideouts, according to the IDF. The tunnel found in Shifa last week ended at a blast door after about 55 meters or 180 feet of tunnel. Past the door, which was breached yesterday, excuse me, which would be 21 November, the IDF says it found an air-conditioned room, a hideout, toilets, and a kitchen. The IDF exposes further parts of the Hamas tunnel network under Shifa, publishing videos of additional entrances and underground hideout rooms. The IDF said the tunnels goes under the so-called Qatari building at Shifa. Let's see what else. Uh, it says another two tunnel shafts were found near the hospital, one in a street, and another in a building used as a classroom about 100 meters away, 328 feet away. IDF also unearthed many weapons, as well as finding findings that indicate Hamas-held hostages were previously at Shifa, the IDF says. And here's a statement. The findings unequivocally displays Hamas's deliberate method of operating underneath hospitals. The terrorist organization also exploits the hospital buildings, using them to store weapons in and as a terrorist headquarters. Reporters from numerous outlets were also given a tour by, by IDF spokesman Rear Admiral Daniel Hagari, who we, who we know is one of the IDF spokesmen. And we talk, we see a lot of uh, statements that come from the IDF come from him. And that's it. So I just want to catch you up on the latest on the, the Shifa Hospital. There is a tunnel. They went through the blast door. They got power, air conditioning, all kinds of stuff down there. And now we'll get to the, I don't know, it's not called a ceasefire. I think they're calling it a, a temporary truce. So this is from Times of Israel. Uh, 23 November, yesterday. Now keep in mind, it's like one o'clock in the morning here. So yesterday is basically today. So uh, as sides confirmed truce Friday, Israel 
notifies families of 13 hostages set to be freed. This is from Tal Scheider and Jacob McGid, 23 November, Times of Israel. A spokesman from Qatari Foreign Ministry said Thursday afternoon that the temporary truce between Israel and Hamas will go into effect Friday, 7 a.m. Israel time, while the first group of 13 Israeli hostages will be freed on Friday at 4 p.m. Israeli Prime Minister's Office confirmed that Israel had received an initial list of name of abductees expected to go free and that families of those set to return on Friday have been updated. The Hamas military wing also said the ceasefire will go into effect Friday morning and last four days. Here's a statement from them. They said in four days, 50 hostages will be released, confirming information that Israel, from Israel that three jailed Palestinian terror convicts will be freed in exchange for every Israeli hostage, totaling 150. The deal was mediated by Qatar and the United States and would see Hamas release 50 women and children. It took hostage on 7 October over the course of four days in exchange for a lull in the fighting during those four days and the release of 150 prisoners, Palestinian prisoners, held by Israel for terror offenses, all of them women or minors. The deal will also enable an influx of fuel and humanitarian supplies to Gaza. During Wednesday evening press conference, Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu warned that Hamas's Gaza, Gaza leader, uh, Yah, I can't say his name, Yahya Sinwar, Sinwar, uh, could try all kinds of tricks and said that the government was prepared, prepared for that eventuality. Uh, the prime minister stressed that the ceasefire agreed upon with Hamas did not apply to Hamas chiefs abroad, saying that there was no such obligation. And he said that he had instructed the Mossad to act against the heads of Hamas wherever they are. Defense Minister Gallant echoed Net- Netanyahu's warning. Here's a quote from him. You can convey to the Hamas leaders that they are living on borrowed time, he told a reporter. As far as I'm concerned, the fight with Hamas spans the entire globe, from the terrorists who travel with Kalishnikovs and fatigues and battle our soldiers in the field, to those who travel in luxury planes and enjoy themselves while the actions of their emissaries are perpetrated against women and children. They all face death. So, as usual, the Israelis are not playing around. Uh, let's see. That's the Shifa temporary truce. Now, here's a pretty good article from. It's not pretty good. It's a good article from Zoran Kusavak uh, from Al Jazeera. He does, I guess, kind of like a daily column or an every other day column. Some of his stuff's pretty good. Some of the stuff I don't use. This one here is a pretty insightful, uh, pretty insightful article. I'm not using all of them. I'm just using most of it. Uh, it's an analysis how to enforce a Hamas. Israel Truce by Zoran Kusevac, uh, published on 24 November. So here we go. The pause was agreed to Tuesday night, announced on Wednesday, and was expected to temporarily halt the war on Thursday morning, but the fighting did not stop. In fact, it seemed to intensify. Aero bombardment continues supporting Israeli forces, trying to get as close to possible as the center of Gaza City before the truce. Hamas fighters set up ambushes to to incapacitate as many tanks and armed personnel carriers as possible before the ceasefire stops all military activity for 96 hours. The last two days must have been the most nerve-wracking for fighters on both sides since the beginning of the ground campaign. Military historians have written volumes on simultaneous anxiety, stress, 
expectation, hope, mental pressure, and existential, I think that's what it says, fear of soldiers in the hours before a ceasefire truce. Existential, I think that's what it means. I speak English, and I'm not familiar with that word. Uh, Anyway, for the truce to work, it must be made workable in the first place. Politicians agree in broad terms, thus pause the fighting and exchange people. The wording defines intent and scope, but exactly how to implement what has been agreed upon always falls to those on the ground, the military. Uh, again, this is a pretty good article. He, uh, pretty insightful. Uh, it's not an easy task. Officers of both enemies, officers of two enemies who have been trying to kill each other now have to talk as fighting rages. I've seen many ceasefires and prisoner exchanges, but I do not remember a single one where a political agreement signed by big bosses must be implemented without adversaries on the battleground working it out in fine print, for the devil's always in the detail. To start off with, some officers are chosen to study the agreement and knowing the situation on the battlefield determine how to carry it out. They will need to decide viable, safe routes for the buses taking hostages and prisoners from one side to another, agree if the buses will have civilian or military drivers and possibly guards, decide if the guards will be armed or not, will they be accompanied by medical personnel, At what point will they be released or transferred from one set of buses to another? Will any soldiers participating in the exchange cross into enemy territory? And if so, when and how they will return? Who's responsible for clearing the roads of rubble and mines? And to what point? And there's more sticky, difficult issues. The moment that two opposing envoys meet is always the tensest as any seemingly trivial detail could collapse the whole deal. Who will salute first? What happens if one representative declines to shake the other's hand? Does the Israeli officer give a military salute, given that that for the Israeli side, the opposite number is a terrorist? What happens if they can't agree on some issues? That would be interesting how that works. Uh, I don't think Israel saluting anybody. That's not in the article, that's me. Uh, with so many back to the article, with so many potential traps, two sides can often prefer to use an intermediary they trust to help clarify matters, defense, diffuse tensions, and propose mutually acceptable solutions. A middle of the road approach where neither negotiating side would lose face. That's probably what they're going to do. Uh, it helps if the intermediary knows the situation and has dealt with both sides in the past. In Gaza, that could be the International Committee of the Red Cross or Red Crescent. As announced on, by Qatar on Thursday, the first captives are, are to be released at 4 p.m. on Friday, just nine hours after the fighting is supposed to stop. That suggests that most of the details I've listed here have already been ironed out, and that gives reason for cautious optimism. The only slight doubt in my mind is the practicality and the wisdom of starting an exchange of civilians at a time when darkness is about to set in. Conducting any business after the sun sets is never a good idea in a combat zone. So that's it from Mr. Kusavak. Kind of an insightful article from him. Um, I think I'm done with the Israel stuff. Yes, I am. So that's it. What am I doing on time? 15 minutes. Not bad. Uh, One, two, three, four more articles. It'll be an early night. This is from Defense News. Canada delays 3.6 billion Reaper buy until drones can work in the Arctic. So I've got two drone stories, a U.K. sub story that's interesting, and I go one story from the Pacific, uh, North Korea and South Korea. That's what we got left. So back to the uh, Canadian drone story. 23 November, David 
Puglis, Defense News, the Canadian military's acquisition of medium-altitude armed drones is being delayed to allow for more developmental work to enable the aircraft to operate in the Arctic region. Uh, this is their program. It's called the Remotely Piloted Aircraft System, RPAS, Remotely Piloted Aircraft System. This project is to deliver a fleet of drones for the Royal Canadian Air Force that would be operational by 2025. That's like a year away. That date has been now shifted, and the delivery of the first aircraft is 2028. That's no joke. That's three years. Here's a quote from Department of National Defense, Canada, uh, Poland, Poland, P-O-U-L-I-N. Here's a quote. The Canadian RPAS, which means Remotely Piloted Aircraft System Project, uh, will require significant developmental work in order to address the Royal Canadian Air Force's requirements which differ from our allies' requirements. Ottawa was focused on acquiring the General Atomics MQ-9B Reaper in a projected budget as much as $5 billion Canadian dollars or $3.6 billion U.S. dollars. It hopes to have a contract in place by the end of this year or early next year. The development of work will require integration of a new systems on the MQ-9B. For example, the need to operate at high northern latitudes, including the Arctic, requires the use of satellites and aircraft antennas and communication components not previously integrated on the MQ-9. Also, additional testing and qualification work will be required to ensure that the RPAS can be operated and maintained in Canadian climactic conditions. There's also some developmental effort required to integrate the Canadian-made WestCam MX-20 EOIR sensor onto the platform. The EOI sensor, that's obviously a camera, a day camera, and a thermal camera. That's not the article. That's just a guess. Uh, here's a, oh, here we go. Mark Brinkley, spokesman for General Atomics Aeronautical System, has declined to comment. In September of this year, the United States State Department approved a potential foreign military sale to Canada for 219 Hellfire missiles and other weapons and radar to be used on the MQ-9B. That sale was worth an estimated $313 million. Uh, Department of National Defense spokesman Andrew McKelvey said that the foreign military sales proposal was based upon the current planned timelines for the RPAS project. The equipment and weapons expected to be provided through the FMS case will be delivered as and when required to support the RPAS integration, testing, and production work that that will be performed by General Atomics. That's end of story. Uh, next drone story, this is the uh, MQ... MQ-25A Stingray, made by Boeing. Navy delays unmanned MQ-25A Stingray timeline after IG warnings. This is from Breaking Defense, Justin Katz, 21 November. Uh, The U.S. Navy is pushing back its timeline for a significant program milestone for its new 16.5 billion unmanned refueling aircraft program following warnings that it was risking delays and increased costs. 16.5 16.5 billion unmanned refueling aircraft program. That's pretty interesting. Uh, the service has been preparing to make critical production decisions for the MQ-25A Stingray program prior to testing whether the aircraft meets operational capability requirements, according to a new report by the Defense Department IG. They published this report on 16 November. Uh, here's a quote from the report. Making critical production decisions without performing developmental tests and evaluation and 
Initial Operating Test and Evaluation, IOT&E, increases risk that the MQ-25 program will not meet operational capability requirements, delayed development of the MQ-25 to the aircraft carriers, and increased program costs. That's from the report. What all that means, that's all uh, acquisition speak. What that means is IOT&E is where you take the piece of equipment, whatever it is, and you hand it to the people that are going to use it in the environment they're going to use it in, and you run it through tasks that they're going to use it in that environment, right? And let the soldiers, in this case, Navy personnel, break it. Let the weather do what it's going to do. Let the operational uh, timeline going to do what it's going to do, and you kind of see how it's going to p- perform. And then, then you make some, if it doesn't work, then you go back to the drawing board, you fix this. But if it works good, then you say, yeah, let's start building a bunch of them and, and issue it out. That's, that's what the IG is saying. You're not doing that. Why aren't you doing that? If you don't do that, you're going to increase program costs. You're going to delay the development, and you might not meet operational requirements. So why are you doing this? And I think the Navy's going to back off and do what they're supposed to do. Anyway, uh, the MQ-25 Stingray is a Boeing-made unmanned aircraft designed to operate from aircraft carriers and relieve the F-A-18 Super Hornet of the refueling mission, as well as conduct limited ISR, which is Intelligence Surveillance and Reconnaissance. The Navy, according to the IG, had planned to clear the program for Milestone C and inter- initial, operation, initial operational capability prior to testing and evaluation, traditionally done in advance of those declarations. Those milestones collectively would indicate the contractor could, can begin L-RIP, low-rate initial production, and the aircraft is suitable for limited operations. So milestone C means, again, that's all acquisition speak. When you get milestone C, there's obviously an A, B, and C. C is the last one. C means you're a programmer record. C means you're funded and for sustainment and all that, right? That means you're legit. IOC means the first unit equipped gets it and that they this, the people that have it are trained and that there's some sustainment, sustainment in place that if it breaks, it can be fixed. And then it's deployable. It's ready to go to war if possible. That's what all that means. The Navy was trying to go to Milestone C and IOC before they've done all their IOT and all their, their testing, the testing I mentioned before. The IG called them on it, and they're like, okay, you got us. We're not going to do that. Uh, I think. Let's get through the article. Uh, but the IG report recommended the, that the Navy delay the milestone de- declaration, the milestone C declaration, until the appropriate tests and evaluation are conducted. The watchdog also recommended that the program office updates the MQ-25 program risk management documentation to identify, assess, and develop measures to mitigate the impacts of not performing uh, DT&E and IOT&E before Milestone C and IOC decision, IOC and initial operating capability, all that stuff I just told you. Uh, In response to the report, the Navy acknowledged the IG's warnings and said it adjusted its timeline, was no longer planning to move forward with Milestone C or LRIP, low-rate initial production contract this year. It did not elaborate on a new timeline. So I guess they're not going to try to do milestone C decision. Generally, I think the milestone decision is done. Well, I think you can do it both ways. I think you can do it. I think the smart way to do it is after the test and evaluation. But you can be done. You go to milestone C and do the test and evaluation afterwards if you have a lot of confidence in the program. 
the Navy obviously has confidence in the program. The IG warns against it, and I think they're going to listen to the IG. But the Navy says, hey, this thing is very important. The MQ-25 is urgent, needed by the fleet, a concern acknowledged by the IG. Uh, I think here's something the IG acknowledges. As the first CVN-based unmanned air vehicle, the MQ-25 is a crucial step in the Navy meeting its goal of having 60% of CVN air wings unmanned by 2040, according to the report, the IG report, which uses the three-letter code CVN in place of the phrase aircraft carrier. Therefore, the Chief of Naval Operations stated it's critically important to deploy the MQ-25A on CVNs as quickly as possible. When the Navy first announced in 2018 that Boeing would design and produce the MQ-25, service leadership said the goal of for IOC was FY24, a milestone marker that has since been called into question due to various production issues. Well, shoot, you're on 24 now. You should be able to make IOC, right? But anyway, if the chief says move fast, then you move fast, right? And that's what the acquisition folks are doing. So they're only doing what they're told to be doing. They're moving fast. The IG steps in and says slow down. So I guess they're going to slow down. Anyway, interesting article. Okay, what's next? Oh, I got two more stories. Uh, second depth gauge saved UK Vanguard nuclear sub diving dangerously low, defense minister says. This is from Breaking Defense. Tim Martin. Haven't done a story from him. Well, that's not true. We just did one last episode. So I think we're back on board with Tim Martin. It's about a sub here. So a senior UK defense minister told a lawmaker today, 22 November, that a Royal Navy Vanguard-class submarine carrying Trident nuclear missiles was saved from sinking to a dangerously low depth after its crew used a backup depth gauge to keep the vessel diving within safe limits. Uh, James Heapy, H-E-A-P-P-E-Y, is a UK Armed Force Minister. He said during Defense Committee hearing today that the second depth gauge was able to avert what was reported to be imminent. Uh, his comments confirm a report from the BBC that a second depth gauge was critical to preventing a potentially catastrophic incident that purportedly took place more than a year ago. Officials have revealed little about the incident in which the main depth gauge on the sub reportedly failed while the boat was preparing to go out on patrol and diving, potentially endangering the crew. The BBC also reported that the Royal Navy launched an investigation to the incident. Uh, this James Hiappi uh, went on to reassure lawmakers that the safety of the Vanguard vessel is in hand. The UK operates four Vanguard-class submarines, but the name of the individual vessel to have been put at risk has not been shared. As a rule, Britain's Ministry of Defense does not comment on nuclear submarine operations. Each Vanguard submarine carries, carries 48 Lockheed Martin Trident II D-5 nuclear warheads capable of striking targets out to 4,000 miles away. In 2016, UK lawmakers voted in favor of keeping the UK's nuclear deterrent out to the 2030s, since leading to the procurement of approved four Dreadnought-class ballistic missile submarines to replace the Vanguard's class. BAE is a lead contractor and shipbuilder for the next-generation Dreadnought subs, which will measure 153 meters long and have a displacement of 19,000 tons. These new vessels will also be armed with Trident missiles. That's in the story. I've got one more left. This is out of the Pacific, USNI. 
23 November, Zerhan Mazdar, he keeps us up to date with um, all the Chinese Navy news and the North Korean Navy news and South Korean and Japan. So here's a story from him. North Korea terminates military agreement with South Korea. Kind of a big deal here. Pyongyang has terminated the 2018 Comprehensive Military Agreement, also known as the CMA, with Seoul in response to South Korea's decision to, to suspend part of the agreement due to North Korea's satellite launch on Tuesday, North Korea announced on Thursday. That's kind of a mouthful. Basically, North Korea launched a satellite on Tuesday. South Korea got didn't like it. So they said they're going to suspend part of this comprehensive military agreement. And then now, to their part, like ping pong, Pyongyang says to, have, to hell with the whole agreement. <coughs> Excuse me. Uh, the 28th, this agreement we're talking about, laid down a number of measures that would lower military tensions and, accident, and accidental military clashes between both sides. And here's some of the stuff that it, this agreement laid out. Uh, the dismantling of guard posts along the DMZ, a no-fly... So dismantling the guard posts on the DMZ, uh, I guess it dismantled a no-fly zone along the DMZ, a cessation of live ar- artillery drills and field exercises above regimental level with three miles of the DMZ. So you can't do that. A similar ban on live fire maritime maneuvers exercised along the maritime borders of East and West Sea and a ban of tactical live-fire drills involving fixed-wing aircraft, including the firing of air-to-ground guided weapons within the designated no-fly zone in the eastern and western regions of the military demarcation line. So that's what the agreement said you couldn't do. You couldn't do any of those things. And then in response, after that satellite, North Korea, uh, South Korea said, okay, we're going we're gonna to implement one of those things again. And here's what it is. So on Wednesday, in response to the North Korean satellite launch, South Korea announced it would suspend Article 1, Paragraph 3 of the agreement and that aerial reconnaissance and surveillance along the demarcation line would be restored. So before, you weren't allowed to do that under this agreement. They launched the missile, North Korea, or the satellite. South, South Korea says, the hell with that. We're going to start reconnaissance the demarcation line again. And then they told North Korea they are going to start doing it, and here's their response. Again, uh, We've talked about this before. China and especially North Korea's responses are always, I don't know, it, you, you be the judge. Uh, so here's their response. Those scrapping the Republic of Korea can never evade the responsibility for scrapping the North-South military agreement and must pay dearly for it. Uh, they said this on Thursday. Uh, in a statement, North Korean Ministry of Defense said the North Korea launch of military reconnaissance satellite was legitimate and a just exercise of sovereignty to closely monitor its enemies' various military moves in and around the Korean Peninsula. The statement continues, Nonetheless, the political and military gangsters of the Republic of Korea have gone extremely hysterical with confrontation, labeling the legal right of the Democratic People's Republic of Korea as a violation of UN resolutions and illegal action. The North Korean Ministry of National Defense said from now on, the North Korean military will not be bounded, would not be bound by the comprehensive military agreement and would restore all military activities halted under the agreement, which is all that stuff I just read uh, up above. Uh, Here's some more of the statement. We will withdraw all military steps taken to prevent military tension and conflict in all spheres, 
spheres, including ground, sea, and air, and deploy more powerful armed forces and new type of military hardware along the region of the military demarcation line, read the statement. The armed forces will always maintain overwhelming and offensive posture and closely watch the enemy's confrontational hysteria. And for its part, South Korea said in a parliamentary session on Thursday, the defense minister said, warned that if North Korea stages provocations under the pretext of the suspension, we will respond immediately, strongly, until the end. In a situation where military surveillance and reconnaissance is limited, North Korea strengthening its surveillance and reconnaissance capabilities against us through military reconnaissance satellites. Uh, that's from the defense minister. His name is Shen Won Sik. He said South Korea's partial suspension was essential measure to protect people's lives and safety and a corresponding response to North Korea's provocation along with a minimal defensive measure. And that's it. End of story. That was, poof. I'm tired just from reading that one. That's it, 33 minutes. Wow. It took a little bit longer than I thought. I thought it'd be done in less than 30 minutes. But that's it. 195 is in the books. I would say happy Thanksgiving, but it's already over with. So uh, hope you enjoyed episode 195. Thank you very much for listening, and good night.